Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Ryan Schreckengast, uh, and I'm one of the preachers here. You may have heard uh, the aphorism that it's not what you know, but who you know that matters. For the young professionals uh, in the congregation today, you may have things like the LinkedIn account so that you could take advantage of the power of networking to leverage the people that you know. Uh, I clearly remember job hunting after college and being amazed by the doors that would open if I could claim even one person uh, within the company who knew me and who I knew, uh, rather than just cold applications online. Today, we're going to talk about doctrine. Uh, and I know that when I say that word doctrine, you probably have one of two responses. Uh, you either cringe and immediately turn around to look at the clock, or you start to drool in excited anticipation. And you know who you are, depending on which of those <laughs> that you are. So I won't call names. But I encourage you today to just set aside your expectations about that word doctrine uh, and to look with me at this passage in 1 Timothy 6 and see the beautiful and the even simple truth about what good doctrine really is. And it's not just a list of true facts or things that we should know or what we know, but it's about who we know. It's about Jesus Christ, the only immortal sovereign King of Kings who alone is worthy to have dominion over our lives. And it's about what we do with that knowledge of Christ. So this week we will conclude 1 Timothy, uh, which is one of Paul's last letters before his death at the hands of the Romans. And we will read the closing charge that Paul gives to Timothy, who will be his successor. Now this letter has been one that's full of expectations and specific directives about how the still immature church should represent Christ once Paul is gone. And Paul began his letter to Timothy with a warning about doctrine. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And he's going to conclude this letter in chapter 6, verse 3, where he's going to continue talking about doctrine. In today's text, we're going to see two contrasting doctrines. We're going to see doctrines about who is worthy to have dominion in our lives. The second doctrine, which we will define, will be good doctrine. But the first section is going to show us some hallmarks of what Timothy needs to be wary of in the church. Warnings of what the church may become twisted or perverted if it's twisted away from the truth. And in particular, we're going to see that we can pervert good doctrine when we put anything in that lordship position in our lives other than Christ. Uh, he's going to especially warn us about money. Uh, but this, those, those things that we put in place of God are not merely moral failures. They're actually doctrinal failures that are central to what we believe and in what we put our hope. So let's begin with the first point on your outline, which is good doctrine perverted. Uh, and read along with me, please, 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 10. That's on page 577, if you have one of the church Bibles, and it should be up on the screen behind me. All right. 
If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So we see that in verse 3, Paul warns Timothy against the teaching of a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. The word doctrine just means something that is taught or a fundamental belief, principle, or body of principles about a thing. And in verse 4 and 5, Paul calls out those who have perverted this teaching this doctrine of Jesus Christ, by making it all about them. They imagine that godliness is a means of personal earthly gain. And what could be more conceited or ignorant than to think that the object of Christ's sacrifice was to build up our own earthly power, possessions, and dominion? This kind of teaching reveals a fundamental belief of the heart or a doctrine, an appeal that to us the one worthy of honor and dominion in my life is me. I am the one worthy of the honor. I am the one worthy of dominion. And this shows a depravity of mind and a deprivation of the truth. Paraphrase verse 5. This belief flies in complete contradiction to the scripture and to the nature of God himself which we'll see in the next section where Paul defines this good doctrine. Now, when I say it this way, it seems unbelievable that anyone would actually believe that they are worthy of dominion and honor in their own life above the Lord of Lords. But every day, I make choices that reveal how tempted I am to let my doctrine get perverted in this way. My heart rebels when one of my kids wakes up from a nap and interrupts my free time. I choose to read or watch YouTube when I know that my time in the Word is lacking. I make sure that others know of every one of my successes, but I will clearly downplay any of my struggles. I expect the rest of the preaching team to take time out of their schedule to help me with my sermon, which I do infrequently but I don't find the time to help them with theirs every week. All of these things are evidences that my doctrine or my belief about who Christ is and my actions accordingly is at risk of being perverted. And Paul points out another risk 
to, to the perversion of good doctrine in verse 10. Look at that with me. He says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So how could a craving for money actually draw someone away from faith? Well, isn't money just such an attractive idol? It promises security, it promises comfort, and it promises, above all, control. Then who don't I need if I have a secure, comfortable future where I have absolute and complete control? I don't need Christ. But verse 9 tells us, But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So far from providing the promised control and security, in fact, this desire, this craving for, for control and for riches lead us to destruction. So how tempting is it to believe these promises? But we know that the security that it offers is only truly found in God. Paul points out later in this chapter more about this topic as well. So it's not the money itself that is evil, but it is the love or the craving for it that reveals our fundamental belief of the heart, that my future is not safe with God, only with me. My work, my provision will be sufficient to ensure my future. And what another complete contradiction to the gospel. What a perversion of Christ's doctrine that he is sufficient. He is the one who does the work. And when we desire to surround ourselves with the riches that ensure our security, that is a perversion of the good doctrine of who is worthy to be Lord in our lives. And we can contrast this with verses 6 through 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Here's the right perspective on the temporary nature of everything that this world has to offer. We see that Christ is the eternal one, and we are not. We see that Christ is the one worthy in our lives, we are not. And we rest on his provision not our own. So, how can we apply this text in our lives, church? Well, money gets this special focus in this section, and I think we would be wise to focus on it as well. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. So, church, do not love money. It's seductive because it claims to provide what only God truly can. In this world, money buys security and comfort, acceptance, pleasure, peace of mind, admiration, authority, respect. It even buys love in this world. But we know that only God is the true eternal source of these things. And church, money is a liar. Do not believe the lie that money will provide you with these things. Only God can. 
Also, church, do not imagine that godliness is a means of gain. We see in this section that even godliness or doing the right thing can become an idol that we put in place of Christ's lordship in our lives. So, employees, students, do not make godliness an idol. Do not work hard or do not make godliness an idol, but be dependable at work and work hard, not because you crave the recognition of doing the right thing or the approval of your peers and leaders, but do the right thing and work hard because you represent Christ. Children, obey your parents, not just to avoid punishment, but because God is using your parents to show you his love. And allow Jesus to really change your heart. Don't just say the words that you know are the right words to say. But let Jesus change your heart. You see in this section that godliness for gain is not really godliness. But godliness with contentment is itself great gain. So, having warned Timothy about this, these dangers and the hallmarks of a twisted or a perverted doctrine, a twisted heart belief about who Christ is and what we should do about it. Paul contrasts this with a very, very big but. Paul urges Timothy not to fall prey to this perversion, but to cling to the right and the true doctrine, which he's going to define in this next section. So let's think about the second point on your outline, good doctrine defined, as we read the next portion of chapter 6, 11 through 16. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life in all things, and of Christ Jesus, who is his, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be the honor and the eternal dominion. Amen. We see in this section that good doctrine has two major components. It has a correct fundamental belief in the eternal and sufficient nature of God. And it has the action that bears witness to that belief. So let's first start by looking at the actions. We see that the fruit of a person who has this right fundamental belief of who God is will have the fruit in their life characterized in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. What will they do? They will pursue righteousness. They will pursue godliness. They will pursue faith, pursue love, pursue steadfastness and gentleness. 
The person who believes rightly who Christ is and gives him the right place in their life will not live a lifestyle of craving, be it of controversy, be it of money, be it of any idol which they put in that place of lordship above God. But they will pursue righteousness and godliness with contentment, but not for earthly gain. They will be loving and steadfast and gentle, and they will fight the good fight of faith. So these are the actions that represent a person with good doctrine. And they stem from the fundamental belief in the person and the nature of Jesus Christ. Look at the two lines in this chapter where Paul refers to the good confession. In verse 12, he says, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In verse 13, it says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So there's this powerful confession that both, excuse me, this powerful confession that both Timothy and Jesus made and that apparently allows Timothy to take hold of the eternal life to which he was called. This is so powerful, and this confession is laid out in the story of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Uh, we get more detail about what this confession is that Jesus makes. So we're going to uh, jump just a minute away from uh, 1 Timothy here, and we're going to go to John chapter 18, 33 through 37, uh, where we get more detail about this confession that Christ makes um, in his testimony before Pontius Pilate. So you can read this on the screen behind me. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So this confession that Jesus and Timothy and Paul make is about the identity of Christ. Christ is king. Amen. And Christ's kingdom is not of this world. This otherworldly kingdom is being brought about through the redemptive plan of God Almighty. So the good doctrine is one that rightly identifies the kingship and the otherworldly kingship of Christ Jesus. And this is central to the definition of good doctrine. Look at verses 15 and 16 again. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, 
to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So Paul's entire letter of 1 Timothy has been about this doctrine. That Timothy must recognize the nature of who Christ is, and he must allow that faith to shape every aspect of his life and every aspect of the church at all levels. Who Christ is must shape everything that we've learned about in the letter of 1 Timothy. It must shape the roles of men and women. It must shape the roles of church leadership and the poor and widows and prayer and service to masters and money and, 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 and. And then one more. Everything must be shaped by who is Christ, and we must act on it accordingly. So, what is good doctrine? Good doctrine is both belief and action. It is recognizing that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that to him is all honor and eternal dominion. And then, we live like it. So, Grace Fellowship Church, invest in getting to know Jesus Christ. Learn about him in prayer. Learn about him in his blessings in your life. Learn about him in your sufferings. And especially learn about him in every passage, in every word and line of his Holy Scripture. And as you get to know him more and more, change your life to live in accordance with who he is as eternal Lord uh, and King over all of the earth. Entrust your broken relationships to his faithfulness. Forgive your enemies as he forgives you. Hate your sin as he hates sin. Share your heart's hopes and fears with your loving father. Trust your future to the author of all creation and go deeper and deeper and deeper until the end of your days or until Christ returns. So lastly, Along with Paul, I charge you to have this good doctrine. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So after reminding Timothy of this great truth, Paul then goes back and addresses again the very real threats to good doctrine. He looks back at the love of money, which he said could draw people to fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. And he applies this good doctrine of who Christ is to that same object, to money. And he contrasts the results to what will happen through a perverted doctrine. So let's look at this last point on your outline, good doctrine defended, and we'll see the difference and the critical importance that good doctrine makes um, versus this perverted doctrine. So read with me First uh, Timothy six seventeen through 21. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, 
thus storing up for themselves treasures, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. In this section, we see that there is still the threat of perverted doctrine and that it will not disappear until the return of Christ. We are still in the world, although we are not of it. And we will need to defend this good doctrine from our own sinful nature. We will still have money. Many of us will even have riches. We will have authority. We will have opportunity to live in a godly manner and to choose how we, um, and to choose why we live in that manner. Any of these things could be perverted if they're allowed to be put in the place of lordship above Christ. But look how the good doctrine breaks this power of the love of money. This is so exciting. If it's true that Christ is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, then money is not that. So why would we boast or put our faith or dependability in our riches? All of that is gone when we rightly understand the good doctrine of who Christ is. The identity of Christ frees us to not set our hopes on uncertain riches, but on God who richly provides everything to enjoy. It says in verse 17, the identity of Christ frees us, according to verses 18 and 19, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for ourselves uh, a good foundation for the future so that we may take hold of that which is truly life. This best defense, the best defense against this twisting of our doctrine or the perversion of our doctrine is the good doctrine. It's the thing that identifies who Christ is that protects us from putting other things in his place. Isn't it interesting that Paul takes this, um, he mentions this impossibility of taking anything with you after death in the same breath that he says that good works and generosity are the foundation for our future. So we can view the material things through a twisted doctrine where the things become a means of providing us with security and a dependable future, or we can view our material things through a good doctrine that rightly identifies the Lordship of Christ, where they become a provision of God to enjoy and to use as an opportunity to live according to the identity of Christ. The thing has not changed. The money is still there. But how we view it through a perverted doctrine or a good doctrine changes the way we behave. And it changes what we put our hope in. So Paul gives this one final warning to Timothy, which he's going to set up the entire next book that we're going to study next, 2 Timothy, where he, he warns about the importance of defending this good doctrine, this gospel. Verse 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, 
some have swerved from the faith. This doctrine is not safe. It will be attacked. It is the responsibility that Timothy is inheriting to guard against this perversion of who Christ is. And Paul knows that there's going to be a pull on Timothy away from this right doctrine. And it's going to be a pull toward a worldly doctrine. Godliness will be misused. Love of money will destroy. Contradictions and false knowledge will cause the faithful to swerve. Which is why endurance is so important. And Paul recognizes that it is so hard. That's why he said in verse 14 and 15, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. This is why he's going to write a second letter to Timothy, encouraging him to endure, to defend, to fight. He knew that Christ's proper time of return would not be before Paul's lifetime. He knew that this responsibility of defending the gospel would fall to Timothy and would fall to others. And it falls today to us. We still find that it's necessary to endure and to fight against our sin nature. So isn't it good that God gave us an entire additional book, 2 Timothy, uh, that will deal with exactly these themes? So how can we apply this text in our lives? I challenge you to remember the good doctrine and to live it. We as a church are truly the rich in this present age. So, we should not be haughty or to set our hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Church, be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. God has blessed us with an abundance and with an abundance of opportunity to be generous and to do good works. We support missionaries in Japan. We have missionaries here in our own congregation who serve around the country and around the world. We have YKC, fellow brothers in Christ, who are sharing this very church building with us. We can be generous. We can do good works in all of these places. We live in a community that is dying, sometimes quite literally, for the good doctrine of who is Lord in their life and worthy of all honor and dominion. Students at Penn State, you see your peers every day who are piercing themselves with many pangs. And you have the opportunity to share with them the good doctrine. So church, if Christ is who he says he is, then we must pray and we must be loving and we must be steadfast and we must share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So in summary, in this chapter, we've seen that Paul warns of a perverted doctrine where the love of money and other cravings take the place of lordship in our lives. We've seen how we can lose sight of the identity of Christ as the true Lord of Lords, and we are tempted to rely on the false security that this world offers rather than on the eternal kingdom of God. We see that good doctrine is that which correctly identifies who Christ is, and then we set, then we live our lives in a way that is consistent with that identity. 
And lastly, we see that this truth is at risk. And it requires a fight and an endurance to guard until the return of Jesus Christ. So Grace Fellowship Church, do not be seduced by the false security of this world, but guard the deposit of the gospel and rely on the sufficiency of the Lordship of Christ in your life. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you, Jesus, for um, for your son. I thank you, God, that you sent Jesus Christ to make a way that we can come into that eternal kingdom. God, that we can live our lives now and for eternity um, under your dominion. Lord, help us uh, as we uh, go about our lives to not allow our uh, belief in who you are to be perverted, to twist us uh, away, uh, to put our, our hope in our own resources in our own good works. God, we know that uh, you alone are capable of saving us. And we thank you, Lord, that your son, Jesus, did just that. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen.